We're starting a new series this morning. Anyone going to guess what it's called? <laughs> well, um, I don't know about you, but um, in, in any given day, if you talk to anyone, probably, you will come across an excuse, right? You're having a conversation with someone, and, and, um, and you're talking about going to the store, and if you're going to the store, it's like, hey, hey, you want to come to the store with me? I need to go get this and this. Well, I don't know if I can do that because. And then the because is followed by an excuse, right? And so we have kind of a, a culture and a pretty accepting culture in the world. Um, it might bring me down a little bit. The way if I yell, it's not ear piercing. But... Um, we kind of have a culture in, in society, in the world that we live in, that, that says, whatever you want to do, great. If you have an excuse for it, great. Right? I mean, we have, we have all of these things that, that we think we should be doing as people, but yet if somebody offers an excuse for that thing, then we don't question the excuse. We just accept it and, and say, well... That must be what's good for them, right? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but um, this is what I've experienced. This is one of the things that I've noticed in life is that, that there are a thousand different excuses for why we can't do the one thing that we need to be doing. And I'm not just talking about the one thing that we're going to be talking about this morning, but, but in all of life, we have a thousand different excuses, right? We have we have excuses for why we can't be friends with this certain person or why we can't be friends with that group of people. We have excuses for why we can't get to work on time. We have excuses for why we need to get to work early. We have excuses for why we need to get out of the door by a certain amount of time, even though it might be getting away from our family. We have to be at work by this, by this amount of time. It's just an excuse, even though we should be spending more time with our family. We have an excuse why we come home from work late, even though we should be coming home from work on time. We have excuses for why we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be contributing to society. We have excuses for why we shouldn't be contributing to our neighborhood to our families. We have an excuse for everything. We have an excuse for, for why we're not voting. I didn't vote this week, I confess. I, I didn't vote on whatever measure it was. So um, if you're mad at somebody, you can be mad at me and the uh, 88% of other Washingtonians that didn't vote in this last election. Um, we have an excuse for everything. We all have excuses for things that we don't want to do. And we think just because we don't want to do them, then we ought to be able to come up with an excuse to justify why we shouldn't do them. And um, I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, you might not like this series. And why I say that is because I want us to be a different kind of church. I have been um, in a, involved in a lot of churches in my, in my tenure as a worship pastor and growing up in a church home and visiting a lot of churches through college years and things like that. And um, we're different. We're, we're already different, and that's a great thing. Um, we have grown at a rate this year that most churches would never experience that rate of growth in their lifetime. That doesn't happen at a lot of churches. 
Yeah, you can clap if you want. But, <laughs> but even in the midst, even in the midst of that, we still have a lot of excuses as a church. And I really want us to be a different kind of church. I don't want us to be the church that maybe many of you have experienced if you've experienced churches in your life where, where there, are, there are reasons why we don't do the things that we're supposed to be doing, the things that we're called to do in the Bible. I don't want us to be a church that has an excuse for why we don't, why we don't help the poor and why we don't uh, reach out to the widows and the orphans and those very few but very explicit and clear things that we're told to do in the New Testament as a New Testament church. There are things that, that we are supposed to be doing as a church that, that was left to us through Jesus and his disciples that he told us to do that not very many churches are doing. And I don't want us to be that kind of church anymore than other churches have been in the past. Now, like you said, we've already taken a bunch of steps, but if we're going to go where God wants us to go, if we're going to reach the people that God wants us to reach, then there are some excuses that we have to set aside and never come back to. And we're going to cover those over the next three weeks. And we're going we're to kind of really dig down deep into who we are as a body here and what it is that drives us. Because one of the excuses that I think we have is that we are, we are all Christians, I think that can be an excuse. I think it can be an excuse to call yourself a Christian. Now, the churches that I have uh, have been a part at, been a part of over over my lifetime, we have had a lot of people in the church that called themselves Christians. A lot of them, probably all of them, if you ask them individually would call themselves a Christian. But were they a disciple? They may call themselves a Christian, but were they a disciple? And I think the number one excuse that we, that we have is, is that we call ourselves Christians. And that word Christian has all kinds of cultural connotations with it, has all kinds of, of, of baggage attached to it that, that I don't think we even recognize or that we don't even realize. And we, so we call ourselves a Christian, and just by, we think, by calling ourselves a Christian, we're good. Just by calling ourselves a Christian, well, I'm safe. I've done what I need to do, and I can move on. But the first excuse I want to talk about is that, is that being a Christian isn't a good enough excuse to not be a disciple. Being a Christian is not a good enough excuse for not being a disciple, to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to dig into this just a little bit, and we're going to spend a lot of time in John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there this morning. If you're new with us, or this is your first or second or third time, we'd love for you to take a minute and fill out this connection card. Let us know that you were here, um, and you can drop that in the offering plate, and we'll uh, just send you a little welcome email and some information about the church and stuff like that. But we just love to know you're here and what you think, how you heard about us, how you came. Those kinds of things are, are important to us because you're important to us, and we're glad that you're here. Um, but I, as you know, am a huge Ohio State Buckeyes fan, a big Buckeyes fan. I was, I was I wasn't born, but I was raised in Ohio. I was raised in southern Ohio, and in southern Ohio, you're an Ohio State Buckeyes fan, whether you want to be or not. 
You just, you are, you're forced into becoming a Buckeyes fan. And, and then when you have an older brother who's a Buckeyes fan, then you really have no choice to be a Buckeyes fan. And so, so I, I grew up being an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. Now, I've never been to a game. I've never been to a game at Ohio Stadium. I've never sat in the horseshoe and cheered for the Buckeyes. I've cheered for them from my couch. I've yelled things at the TV. I have thrown a couple of things maybe in the direction of the TV uh, from a time or two. But I've never been to a game at the stadium where Script Ohio is performed and they dot the I every single week. I mean, I've never been there. But these guys have. Here's a, I want to show you a picture of, of a guy here who's an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. Yeah. That's a Buckeyes fan, right? And if you've watched an Ohio State Buckeyes game, if you've ever seen a Buckeyes game on TV, probably if you turned into the next, the next game that comes on the air, whatever, whatever game it is, at some point during the game, you will see them take a camera shot and go focus on this guy because he is at every game. He is an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. And then there's one more, this guy. He's at every game. Both of those guys I have seen both at, at most of the home games that I've watched on TV. I haven't watched every game, obviously. And I've also seen them at the road games. They travel to the other, to the other towns and the other places and, and root for the Buckeyes. They are fans. They're, they're diehard fans. How many of you would call yourself a fan of, of a sports team? How many of you call yourself a fan of a music group? Let's keep our hands up. How many of you, if you've raised your hand at all, fan of a sports team, fan of a music group, fan of a politician, fan of a radio show, fan of a, anything? Anybody have something that you're a fan of in your life? Right? We're all, we've all got something in our lives. You can put your hands down now. Something in our lives that we're probably a fan of, right? But how many of us have something in our lives that we're willing to die for? How many of us have something in our lives that, that we might be a fan of it, but, but we're willing to take that extra step, that, that next step, that, that dangerous step, that if, if they called me to step out in faith onto the edge of Ohio Stadium at the very top from walking around the edge, and they said, take a step out and go, would you go? Or would, if you had some, one of your music groups that you're a fan of, and they, said, and they said, step in front of this bus for me, would you do it? If you, if you have some you know, crazy radio personality that you listen to and they tell you that the end of the world is coming, which they're all saying, um, every, every year it's the end of the world, no matter which radio personality you're listening to. Um, so at some point they're going to be wrong. And maybe eventually they'll be right. But um, if they tell you the end of the world is coming and you need to do this, this, and this, will you take that step of faith and obey and go and do those things. But see, because guys like we just saw, they're, they're fans, and they might go to a great extent. They might, take, they might go really, really far for being a fan. They might take a lot of crazy steps and do a lot of crazy things. I myself don't ever foresee a day when I paint myself with paint and go and sit on the sidelines. I might go and sit on the sidelines and wear an Ohio State shirt, but I'm not crazy enough to paint my face in, in colors like that and go shirtless and paint stuff on my stomach. I'm just not going to do that. That's not, not, I'm not that sold out of a fan. But the thing is, I think a lot of us as, as Christians approach Jesus in the same way. 
I think a lot of us as, as people who have called ourselves a Christian at some point in time that we've, that we've maybe raised our hand and, and said a prayer or we've come forward and we've prayed with the pastor or we've done any of those things, we, we call ourselves a Christian and then the rest of our lives after calling ourselves a Christian have been about being a fan. Um. We go through life in such a way that, that, that Jesus asks us to do great things, but, but we're, we're, we're viewing from the stands. We're viewing from the outside. We might, we might put on the makeup. We might put on the necklace and the jersey. But when Jesus actually asks us to take the field and get in the game, and be a player, be a disciple, we have a thousand excuses. We have a thousand reasons why I can't. I, I, just, I just don't have the time. I just don't have the time to do what God's asking me to do. I just, I just don't have the money. I don't have the money to do this thing that God is asking me to do. I, I don't have the skills. I don't have the talent. Those are some of the big excuses. But we, we also have a lot of smaller excuses that, that we use from time to time. Well, I just don't think I can make it to church on time this week. Um, well, I just don't think I can, I can go out of here. It's just, it's just too uncomfortable. It's just too awkward. It's just, it's just weird to do what you're asking me to do. It's just, it's just weird to, to go up to somebody that, that, that you know and that you've been praying for and they're good friends and, and cross that line and, and, and invite them to church. It's just, I just, I don't think I can do that. How many of us are, are fans when we need to be followers? How many of us are Christians when what we need to be is disciples? Let's go to John chapter 6. I'm going to read a lot this morning, and I hope that doesn't offend you, but there's a lot of good stuff in this chapter. So we're going to read the whole chapter, and it's one of the longest chapters. So prepare yourself. It's up on the screen. Um, My version will be just a little bit different, but mostly the same. John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. They had seen the cool stuff. They saw the cool stuff Jesus had been doing, and they decided they were going to follow him and see what happened next. And Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, who was one of his disciples, one of the twelve who had been with him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Eight months' wages. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? You ever feel like you're not bringing enough to the table? Like, like God has asked a lot out of you, and, and, and you want to do as much as you can, but all you have is the equivalent of five small barley loaves and two fish. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. 
There was plenty of grass in that space, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Now, it's not entirely sure, but we think that there were at least ten or 12,000 people here because we were, they were counting the men, 5,000 men. Um, that's not entirely clear, but probably at least ten or 12, 14, maybe more, 15,000, 20,000 people that have been following him around, sitting down, counting the families that might be there. Verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. See how I just read over that, like nothing really big happened? Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Verse 12. When they had, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is a prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. Five small barley loaves and two fish... Jesus took them and gave thanks and then started passing it out to the people. Now, I'm not a scientist, but, but five small barley loaves about the size of your hand would not go very far. It would not take Jesus very long to run out of bread. And yet, we see that he passes out all of the loaves. He does this, this miraculous signs where he gives everyone there some bread and some fish to eat. And it's not just enough so that they had a bite. It was not just enough so that they could get a little taste. They ate and had their fill, is what the Bible says. They, they had enough bread and enough fish to fill their stomachs. It would be like you all had five loaves and two fish, five small barley loaves and two fish. There's some interesting things I want to point out here. First, eight months' wages would not be enough to buy food. And, you know, some of you might be kind of like Philip. You, you survey the crowd. You survey the thing that needs to go on, and, and you've got this first excuse. Um, Jesus says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And, and he asked us only to test them for he had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. See, see, some of you might are, have the gift of spreadsheets, right? You have the gift of Excel. You, know, you have the gift of, of looking at, at a situation, looking at the numbers that it's going to take, and then and applying the math and seeing that there's no way we can do what God has called us to do. So, so even this much money would not do what you're asking. And so we use that excuse. Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. But then another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, spoke up. Here is a boy with, with five small barley loaves and two small fish. So he's bringing something, but then he has an excuse. But how far will they go among so many? But Jesus had something in mind, and he knew what he was going to do. He does the miracle. He passes out the food. Everyone has a bite. And then this amazing thing, this amazing thing happens. Um, they had 12 baskets of bread left over. How many disciples were there? 12. 12 baskets of bread left over. Now, I want to point out a couple things. I'm not entirely sure on some of this. You know, there, some numbers are significant in the Bible. I'm not a, I'm not a huge numerology kind of guy. But, but one number that, that I've noticed is, that's important is, is the number five. And the number five, a lot of times when you see the number five come up in Scripture, it's a number that represents grace. 
It's a number that represents God's grace and, and Jesus and, and his plan of bringing grace to the world. And that's going to become very important. Um, because he took the number five, the, the five small loaves, and he multiplied that into enough bread for everyone to eat. And then he gave the disciples 12 baskets of bread that they all had left over. They had 12 baskets each full of bread. And now, in just a minute, we're going to get into a part of the, of the passage where Jesus is telling them, I am the bread of life, where I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who, he who follows me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. And, and Jesus himself is coming as the bread of life into a very hungry world, a world that is, that, is, that is full of things like religion, full of things like laws, full of things, full of, of things that, that you do, 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 do all of the time. But he's coming and bringing a second thing, a second covenant, a second chance for us to connect with God, a new relationship based on grace. And so when I see that, when I read that, and I was thinking about that this week and, and spending some time in this passage, I see that each of the disciples had a basket full of grace left over. Each of the disciples had a basket full of bread in front of them, a basket full of bread that I think could easily represent grace. And, and it's as though Jesus was preparing them. Jesus was saying to them, this is your life from now on. This is what your rest of your life is going to be like. This is what the rest of your life is going to be about. It's going to be about giving people bread that lasts forever. It's going to be about giving people a, a piece of bread that doesn't just satisfy their stomach, but satisfies their soul. And it's, it's a piece of bread that represents grace. And it's, it's as if Jesus is saying, Take this basket and, and extend the grace. Take this basket and pass out the grace. See, see there's, there was enough bread there to feed the 5, 10, 15, 20,000, and there was still grace left over. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got in a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. So, you know, there's a, what they think in, in, in other passages, they say it's a ghost. So they think there's a ghost walking across the water. Um, verse 20, but, but he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. Probably still be afraid if something walking on the water talked. But when they heard his voice, recognized his voice, they were willing to take him in the boat. And here's the amazing thing. And immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were heading. They had been rowing all night. They had been rowing and rowing and rowing. And they had gone three or three and a half miles. But, but as soon as they welcomed Jesus into the boat, they arrived at where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus hadn't gotten in it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got in the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So, so the, the crowd wakes up the morning after they had just had this big meal that Jesus had provided. They realize that Jesus isn't here anymore, that he's gone, that the disciples are gone. They knew that the disciples only had one boat and that they had seen Jesus stick around after the disciples had left. And so they use their logic, their way, their mind and their way of thinking. They figure out that Jesus somehow had gotten away from them miraculously. And then they decide, well... He gave us the food. Let's go see where he is. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Now is where it gets interesting and confusing. Verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you're looking for me because you ate food and your stomachs are full. So he, throws, he, starts, he starts throwing some stuff out there for them to think about to make the point that he wants to make. Verse 27, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe and the one he has sent. Now pay attention to that word believe. It's going to come up a lot more times throughout the rest of this chapter. Believe. So they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, um, I don't know what came to your mind when you just read that, but this is the crowd that was there the day before. This is the crowd that was sitting in the grass, right? This is the crowd that, that, had, that had followed Jesus around and seen a whole bunch of miraculous signs already by this point, right? This is the same crowd that was, that was sitting there and hungry, and Jesus said, what are we going to do to feed them? How are we going to take care of them? And this is the same crowd that then received the miraculous gift of bread and fish. Not only are they asking for a miraculous sign, but they ask for a similar, a similar kind of sign as Moses had received, like something like bread coming down from heaven for them to eat on the ground without knowing where it came from. What sign are you going to perform so that we will believe and so we may see it and, and believe you? What, what will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, and as it is written, he gave them bread from from heaven to eat. It's a good thing I wasn't Jesus. I'm just going to go on. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's very clear that they're already confused. It's very clear that, that they don't really understand what has happened the day before. They don't understand who Jesus is and what is going on. They don't understand the words that he's saying. And so uh, Jesus continues to, to make the situation worse by making it more confusing. Verse 34, four. sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread, the bread that comes down from heaven, right? They want that bread. They want, they want the bread that's better than Moses' bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
Now the Jews still aren't getting it. Verse 41, at this the Jews began to grumble about what he had said. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless, this is important, unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. And they didn't realize that in this very moment, that was exactly what was happening. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has every everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But there is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Up until now, it's been bread. Up until now, it's been confusing, but it's been something that you feel like you could do. And then all of a sudden, right here at the end of verse 51, Jesus takes it up another level and does something crazy. He says, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, if you're standing in the audience and you had been hearing Jesus talk about bread and you had been there the day before to eat the bread and all of a sudden you're kind of in this conversation about bread, you're thinking about the the manna that that Moses had been eating in the desert, your mind is totally thinking about this kind of bread that you can get and eat and put in your mouth and digest. And then Jesus takes a sharp right turn and goes in a very different direction and people are confused. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among them. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I imagine if we had been in the crowd that day, we would say the same thing. And in fact, I think many of us, including myself, find ourselves in the crowd this very day saying, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware of his disciples, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. In verse 66 of chapter 6, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 
You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. If Jesus asked you to do something crazy, would you do it? If Jesus said something crazy like, I don't know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, would you do it? Now, I want to make something clear. Jesus is not, speaking of cannibalism, Jesus is not a zombie nor a vampire. He is not seeking a group of mindless followers who simply eat flesh and drink blood. There is a greater purpose to what Jesus is talking about here, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But even if you didn't understand everything and Jesus asked you to do something crazy, would you be a fan or a follower? If Jesus asked you to do something that was totally insane, would you be one of the 5, 10, 15,000, or would you stick and be one of the 12 that, that, that says, you have the words of eternal life, we have nowhere else to go? Would you turn and walk away, abandon everything, and leave the most important thing that you could have in life behind you? Or would you follow where Jesus told you to follow? See, this crowd had been watching Jesus do some cool stuff. This crowd had been watching, watching Jesus perform the miracles. This crowd had been watching Jesus do things like walk on water and, and heal the sick. And, and then later, they would, some of them would watch him raise the dead. And they had just seen him provide food out of nowhere. But observing from the outside and watching Jesus do cool stuff is not the same thing as being a disciple. It's not the same thing as being a true follower of Jesus. Praying a prayer and saying a few words that someone else leads you through does not mean that you have taken all of the steps that you need to take to become a follower of Jesus. That, that, that raising your hand during a time of commitment does not mean that you are a true follower of Jesus. Coming forward at the end of the service and, and praying with someone at the end of the service does not make you a true follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that those are bad things. I'm not saying that, that we're not going to do those things and try to get people to take those kinds of steps at a church. But, but if that's all that we have done, if that is all that we have done in terms of taking steps to follow Jesus, if we, if we pray a prayer and then we stop, we are not a disciple. If we are asking Jesus to do a miraculous thing and then we get to watch him do it and then that's all the further we go with Jesus, then we still find ourselves in the stands and not on the field. But how many have prayed that prayer and then just gone back to their life exactly like it was? Gone back to exactly how things were a few minutes before. See, here's one of the things I think. I think, I think we want the blessings of following Jesus, but, but we're not willing to carry the burden of being a disciple. We want the blessings that come from being 
a Christ follower. We want, we want to be a part of the miracles. We want to be a part of the things that happen and see, and see God do miraculous things. But, but when God asks us to do something specific, when he asks us to take a step and go, and go further than we've gone before, when he asks us to take a step of faith, then all of a sudden we go from being a disciple to taking a step back and being a follower. We want the blessing. We want all the great things that Jesus can provide without having to do anything in our lives to rearrange our lives for him. We all want the blessing. We all want to see Jesus do cool things. But are we willing to carry the burden of being a follower when the blessing isn't easy to see? And in this passage, we see two very different groups of people. We see a group of people who wanted the blessings, who wanted to see God do the miraculous things. And we see the 12 disciples who were willing to carry the burden that Jesus had asked them to carry. There are the thousands who wanted to follow and see the cool stuff. But then there were the few that that were willing to be a disciple and carry the burden that Jesus was asking them to carry. Do the things that Jesus asked them to do. And as we know, if you know anything about the rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts is full of stories of how God did amazing, amazing things through them. But I think, and I could be wrong on this, that, that our willingness to continually carry a greater burden to continually carry a greater burden of the, of the cross, of the gospel, will result in seeing greater things happen for Jesus Christ. But if we continue to always do the same thing, we will never experience anything greater. Now there's this interesting passage that, that we kind of talked about a little bit in uh, verse 28. They asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Do you need a sign from Jesus to be able to believe him? Or do you believe Jesus without the signs? It's a very important question. Do you need a sign from Jesus for him to prove that he is Jesus? Or will you believe without the sign? Do you need God to do something miraculous? Do you need God to do something crazy for you to be able to believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Or can you believe without the signs? Because Jesus is going to ask us to do some crazy things. Jesus is going to ask us to go places that we would never want to go. Jesus is going to ask us to give sections and parts of our lives that we would never want to give. Jesus is going to continue to raise the bar as we become more and more devoted to him. But as we become deeper and deeper rooted in his ways and in his word. And he's going to continue to push us in a direction that we need to go but we may not want to go. And if we don't believe in the one that God has sent, then we're not going to be able to follow. Because our power to do what Jesus is calling us to do is not based on our strength. It's not based on our abilities. It's based on our belief in Jesus. It is not based on on our skill set, on on how smart we are, and how much we know about this or that. It It is purely and solely based on the power of Jesus at work in us. And if we do not believe that Jesus is who he said he was, then we're going to get out there trying to do some crazy thing for Jesus, and we will not have Jesus in us to do the crazy thing. 
So belief is very important. Belief is very important. This whole, this whole story, this whole passage is about believing that Jesus was who he said he was. This, the, the word believe is mentioned nine times in this chapter alone. Believe is a big word in this story. And there's another thing that we need to point out is that, is that, that phrase that unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is where I think a lot of us as Christians get hung up. Because as, as we saw in verse 28, they're asked the question, what is the work that God requires? They ask the question, what must we do to do the work that God requires? What are, what are the things, in other words, we have been living under the law, we have been living under these 630 rules for a very long time. We are used to to-do lists and to-don't lists, and we're used to doing the things that are on the list and not doing the things that aren't on the list, and, and we know very clearly those things that are written in the law. So they want to know from this, from this prophet, from this guy who's doing these miracles, says, what is the work that God requires? It's a very interesting question. It's interesting because because it's not what we would consider work. What is the work God requires? What is the answer that Jesus gives? Starts with B. Believe. The work that God requires us to do is to believe in his son. The work that God requires us to do is to believe in his son. The work that God requires us to do is to believe in his son. The work is not to do the 10 things on on the 10 commandments list, to do them perfectly your entire life, and in so doing, earn your place with God. See, we, we have this whole thing called the New Covenant, which we're going to get to in just a second. We have this whole thing called the New Covenant that we believe is what Jesus came to put into place. And there was the Old Covenant that God made with the, with the people of the Old Testament, with the, with the people of Israel. And it was all of these lists, all of these rules. That was, that was the Old Covenant. And Jesus came to put in this New Covenant. And it's not a covenant based on rules. It's a covenant based on belief. 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 Unless God draws us to the Son, we cannot believe. Now, I know we're kind of piling on this stuff here, and it's getting a little confusing. It's getting a little, a little hard to track, but, but stick with me for just a minute. As the church... As, as a group of people who call ourselves Christians, little Christ is what that literally, literally means, little Christs. We call ourselves Christians as though we look like Christ. I think we have gotten this terribly and horrifyingly wrong. I'm not just speaking about us. I'm speaking about our entire culture of church, at least the church that I've grown up with and have spent so much time in. We have gotten it so backwards. We've gotten it so reversed. We've gotten it so upside down. The work that God requires is to believe. It's very simple. 
And then as God gets a hold of our life, then, then our desires will change and, and we will start to do the things that God calls us to do. But, but here's where we have gotten confused, is that, is that we think we have to do these things to be acceptable to God, to get to a point where we can be right with God. And all of a sudden, we will be a disciple, a Christ follower. The whole Old Testament is full of how we cannot do what needs to be done to be made, with right, be made right with God. That is why Jesus came as the only perfect human and lived the perfect life and, and became the perfect sacrifice so that we could be covered in his righteousness because he did what we cannot do. It is arrogant of us to think that, that we can do enough to be made right with God, that, that we can do all of these things that bring us to a place where we are all of a sudden right with God. That is nothing but arrogance and pride. That is nothing but, but thinking that we are God. But we can't do anything. The work God requires us to do is to believe. The work God requires us to do is to believe. To believe. To believe that Jesus is who he said he was. To believe that Jesus is the bread of life. And that if we come to Jesus, he will give us the words that are eternal life. That, that we will realize we have nowhere else to go. That, that there is no one else who says what Jesus says. There is no one else who did what Jesus did. There is no one else who offers what Jesus offers. There is no one else who gives what Jesus gives. That if we believe in Jesus Christ, that the only way to have a life that is full and rewarding and full of things that we cannot do and things that we cannot explain and things that we cannot understand is to begin with Jesus. We don't begin with ourselves. We don't begin with all of the things that we need to do because all of the things that we need to do in reality are excuses for why we can never be who God wants us to be. So we start at the beginning. You'll have no other gods before me. Well, I can't do that one, so I must not be acceptable to Christ yet. And then we move on to, you know, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Well, we do that 700 times a day. And so I can't, you know, I can't just, that's another excuse. I just can't get there. And then, well, I can't honor my mother and father. They treated me like garbage. So, so I can't do that. So I'm never going to be able to take that step to become who God wants me to be so I can actually be in the presence of God. And so all of the rules, all of the things that we are supposed to be doing, all of the things that we think are going to make us righteous always become an excuse for why we can't be who God wants us to be. When all that God is asking, all that God is saying is believe. He's saying, believe. Believe. So there's no more excuses. No more excuses. Because Jesus is not requiring our righteousness to meet up to his standard. He is requiring that we believe in his son and his righteousness. He's requiring that we, that we take off the baggage of religion, that we take off the baggage of, of doing all the right things and thinking that that's going to matter to God. We take off all of that baggage and, and we lay it down and we simply believe. So, are you a fan or are you a follower? If when it all hits the fan, and if you know anything about the disciples, in just a few chapters it all did, will you believe? What do you believe? 
when you're pressed down, when you're discouraged, when you have been beaten, when you have been destroyed, and when you have been at your wit's end, at the end of your robe, will you still believe? Will you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he came to do what he said he was going to do? Because if we believe, if we believe, God draws us in. If we believe, God pulls us in. God draws us to his son. God draws us to his righteousness. God fills us with his spirit. God gives us all of the things that we've always wanted. He gives us the ability to live the life that he wants us to live. He gives us the the know-how. He gives us the, the insight into his word. He doesn't give it to us overnight. He doesn't just turn on a switch and all of a sudden you are a Christ follower. He gives it to us over time as we're able to handle it, as we're able to grow into it and do what God calls us to do. But God draws us in through his grace and he covers us with grace. Grace upon grace. Blessing upon blessing. And when God is doing the work in you, then you are going to be drawn to a place where God can only take you. When God is doing the work in you, the, God, the work that he requires, the work of righteousness that, that he wants to bring you into, then God is going to take you all the way. God is going to move you all the way and he will get all the glory and he will get all the credit. When we're trying to do it all ourselves, when we are building our life around who we want to be and who we think we need to be in order to please God and make our lives acceptable to God, we will fail every time. So are you a fan or a follower? Are you sitting on the outside trying to do the things that God thinks that you think God wants you to do, or are you letting God do the work in you that he needs to do? Because God's agenda and God's plan for your life is totally different than what you think needs to be done to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, I hope you'll take some time over this week and, and really get into this, this chapter, John chapter 6. There's really, really so much in there. But what I'm hoping is that, is that we'll stop making excuses about why we can't do what God has called us to do. Because when we truly believe in Jesus and his son and, and what he's done, when we truly believe that, that God gives us everything we need for this life to be holy as he wants us to be and for, to live out the righteousness that he's called us to live out, there aren't any more excuses. There's, there's nothing that's holding us back from moving forward into the life God wants us to live. And one of the things that I think is holding us back are those excuses. Well, I can't do this yet. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mature enough. I don't, I don't know enough about the Bible. I, I, know, I know so much about the Bible, or, or I, I've been in church my whole life that I don't, you know, I'm too young, or I'm too old, or I'm too in between, and I've got too many kids, or I don't have enough kids, or, or I've got too much time that I have to spend at work or I'm not getting enough money from work or, or we have all of these excuses that we're using about why we can't do the thing that God has called us to do when the thing that God has called us to do is believe and trust God for the rest. And can you imagine, can you imagine with me what our community, what this community here at 6-8 Church would look like if we just stopped trying to be Christians and believed? If we just stopped trying to be Christians and believed, what would our community look like? If we stopped 
trying to do the things that, that we think we need to do, and we just believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he was the Messiah, that he did die on a cross in my place for my sins, that he did raise from the dead, and that he did conquer death, hell, and the grave, and that he did ascend to heaven, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father of God. What if we just believed that? How would that really change our community? What if we didn't just think that it was a nice story? What if we didn't just think that that's why you come to church on Sundays? What if we didn't just think that that's what happens when you talk about Jesus? What if we actually believed it? How would it change our life? How would it change our community? What if we turned away from our own religion and trying to earn our way to heaven and instead follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter how crazy it gets? What if we gave up our, our own idea of what it means to be a Christian, actually finally laid down our lives, picked up our cross, and followed Jesus? See, for me, it's not okay if we, if we are this, the kind of church that everyone is expected to as a church. And I am not okay to lead that kind of church. I'm not okay to be, to be in this place where God has called me to be because I want to do something great for God and I want to live my life sold out for God. And I'm not okay to be here and then have us just continue to be the same kind of church that every church is being. We absolutely have to be the kind of church that Jesus calls us to be. That means that we all have to get up and play our part. That means that we can't sit back and wait for someone else to do it. That means we need to step up and get in the game, get on the field, and start playing the position that God has called us to play. We can't sit in the stands and criticize. We can't sit by the wayside and yell things at the referees and yell things at the people who are on the field doing the things that God has called them to do. We need to, every single one of us, get in the field, get in the game, and do what God has called us to do. And this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. This means that we have to believe. This doesn't mean that, that you have to be a fully devoted disciple, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ to be a part of this church. It just means that you have to believe. And then that we become a place that is welcoming and more open and accepting of everyone who doesn't believe yet. Because when you start to believe, when you really start to understand what Jesus is all about, when we really start to understand the gospel, then it puts a burden on your soul that we have to reach as many people as we possibly can. The only way to do that is to welcome them in acceptance. We cannot put requirements on them when they walk in the door. We have to welcome them as they are and let God do the work of changing their heart. We cannot do like we have done to ourselves and expect people to live up to an expectation that is impossible to live up to. Instead, we welcome them with open arms and let Jesus do the work in their hearts that only Jesus can do. And I hope, and I hope that more and more as we shed off the excuses of why we're not bringing those people to church, of why we're not reaching out into the communities that we live in, why we're not reaching out into our 8 to 15, the 8 to 15 people God has put in our lives, that I hope that, that as we start to shed those excuses, as we start to get them off of our backs and off of our shoulders, that we start to become a church who cares more about the people who aren't here than those that are. That, that we become a church that starts to care about every single person that we know who doesn't know Christ and that we will do whatever Jesus, whatever crazy thing that Jesus asks us to do to go after them. But if you are here and you've made that decision to follow Christ and, and you've never changed and you've never taken that step, then, then we all need to start back on a journey. Maybe we need to go all the way back to the beginning and start with just believing in Jesus. Just believing in that he is the Messiah. And then 
wait for him to tell us what to do, what he wants us to do next. And that's the kind of church, that's the kind of follower I hope fills this room every week and I hope we become more and more crazy, more and more sold out, more and more ridiculous when it comes to following Jesus. That even if he said something that we didn't understand, like eat my flesh and drink my blood, that we would do it. That we would take that step of faith and follow wherever he leads. Well, I've gone on for way too long like I normally do. Um, the band's going to come up. We were going to show a video. We're going to take a time of communion. and um, We're going to actually eat the bread and drink it's juice. It's not blood. It's not wine. But Jesus was, was alluding to when he was talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He was, he was alluding to being consumed with Jesus and, and then being consumed with the sacrifice that he made. And, and when we take communion, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. We remember that he actually did die on a cross. We remember that he actually did spill and pour every last drop of blood. We remember that he gave everything.